For me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. Hello again. How are you doing? Did you listen to last week's episode, by the way? Because if you did and you were feeling cranky about the failure of certain Australian states to end native forest logging, I've got some really good news for you. It's so good. So a couple of days after we uh, published that, the state of Victoria announced that they were going to fast track the end of logging native forests from the 2030 target they used to have till the end of this year. So they're doing it. It's so good. So I've been really excited. I feel like that is the power of activism in play. And I think other states are going to watch what Victoria has done and have to act. So I shared some stuff on Instagram if you want to read the background of that. But if you listen to the episode with Bob Brown and you were thinking, God, it's not good enough what's going on in Australia, there's some good news for you. Things can change. Okay, now for a change of tempo this week. Although my guest is still an environmental activist engaged in looking after our natural world. But that's not what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking about veganism. My guest this week is the model activist vegan Robin Lawley. And we met recently on a shoot for the beauty and skincare brand Inika, which is Australian, but it's sold all over the world. And I was happy to work with them because it's all about the authenticity and certification of its organic and natural ingredients. Robin is their ambassador and they actually call her their beauty warrior, which is fitting. She's been on my radar for ages because of the stands she takes, I think. So I remember when she was the first curvy girl to be on the cover of Vogue. It was 2013. She was on Aussie Vogue and then also in this very talked about Italian Vogue cover shoot shot by Stephen Mizell. I've watched Robin's evolution in activism over the years. She's a woman who holds her considerable gorgeousness lightly. She's always been vocal about healthy body image as a inverted commas plus size model. She's always been championing more diversity on the runways and in shoots. But also involved in a bunch of environmental campaigns and climate activations. Robin has ethical reasons for wanting to live a vegan lifestyle, but it was a health crisis that got her on this path and initially changed her diet. She was diagnosed with lupus in 2015 when she was pregnant. And well, I'll let her tell you the story of it. It's really full on. But lupus is an autoimmune disease that basically reprograms your immune cells so they attack the body itself and it results in chronic inflammation. You're going to hear Robin talk about how for her, changing to a vegan diet and adopting something that's called hypernourishment really helped. Now, it is important to say that, of course, this doesn't mean everyone can miraculously get well from whatever it is that ails them by diet alone. No, of course not. And also, Lupus is really complicated. It's very varied case by case. It can be mild, but it can kill you. It can flare up and it can go into remission. And actually, it's more common than you might think. In Australia, one in 1,000 people has it. And I think 90% are women. They don't really know all the stuff around how it works. But they reckon genetics come into play. There's research being done around, I don't know, lifestyle issues. They think that it could also, for some people, be possibly triggered by sunlight. So it's kind of mysterious and also really hard to get to grips with how to manage it. 
Now, speaking to Time magazine last year, a doctor called Diane Kamen, who's a professor of medicine at the Medical University of South Carolina. She's also on a bunch of boards, including for the Lupus Foundation of America. Now, she said, at this point, lupus is not curable. But she did concede that managing health often starts on your plate and dietary habits can absolutely help people manage lupus in a better way. According to John Hopkins University, no overarching diet exists for people with lupus. Okay, but Robin's doctor, Dr. Brooke Goldner, disagrees. She had lupus herself 17 years ago and has put it into remission through this hypernourishment protocol that Robin's on, she reckons. So these days, Robin is thankfully well. And she hopes that others will be helped by her sharing her story. If you're curious about veganism in general, or if you're a vegan... Or actually, if you're firmly the opposite, if you are a farmer or you believe in animal agriculture, actually, why am I so binary? Or if you're somewhere in between and recognise the complexity of this, I would encourage you to tune in for the next few weeks. We've got a few different interviews coming up that touch different angles. We're going to hear from Emma Hackinson, who is the founder of Collective Fashion Justice. That's coming up. It's a really good, really good interview all about the environmental impacts and moral implications of animal agriculture. And I've also just recorded a super interesting chat with a regenerative farmer and brilliant author in the UK called Sarah Langford. And remember, all this is really connected to fashion because of materials. If you're wondering, should we be eating animals? How about should we be wearing them? But that's all to come for now. Let's meet model activist and beauty warrior Robin Lawley. Welcome to the Water Crisis Podcast, Robin Lawley. Where are we? <laughs> we are in Surrey Hills. Thank you for having me. Well, it's lovely because you're back in Sydney. You're from Australia, but you live in New York. I do. So Robin, what are you back here doing? I'm back here for Anika, the beauty brand and makeup. I get to be their new brand ambassador, which I'm super excited about. Organic and it's plastic neutral too with their packaging and they use glass bottles and they use aluminium and cardboard. So for me as a vegan, I'm just I'm just so happy that they're a vegan cruelty-free makeup brand that you know, want to have me as their brand ambassador. We met the other day on yeah. this job with Anika. It's a content series, we'll share links to it. But we had to learn all of this methodology and technical language around what the certifications are. And it was actually, it's complicated. Isn't yeah, it? very complicated. And people have no idea that how much certification it is, especially for organic that you need to do and for vegan mm. and for cruelty-free, you all need certification for that. And halal, like there are so many things that you need certification for. And so many brands do not have anything. And Absolutely. the fact that this brand even cares is like yeah, monumental to me. I loved it. I mean, I don't do a lot of things like that, but I jumped at this chance to do it. And this is not, this podcast not about that, but it is where we met. But I jumped at the chance to do it because it has, it was aligned with my values and it is interesting to find. I've never worked with a beauty or a makeup brand before, but I was interested to see this whole thing around certifications. Yeah, I know. I've I've worked with beauty brands before, but never makeup. This is my first makeup brand job as a model. All right. Why is vegan important to you? Uh, vegan is very important to me. It saved my life. Um, so it's number one. And also when you start watching all the videos, you know, with veganism and- just, As in the animal cruelty videos. Yeah. yeah. As in you know, Dominion or like- 
was one of them that really tortured me. What's that? Game Changers. Dominion was, uh, it's a vegan movie. It's one of the more hardcore. They show you exactly what's happening in the farms and the slaughterhouses. I haven't seen it. Is it a feature? Yeah, it's, it's a good movie to watch, actually. I do recommend it. But it's just, you know, taking that big shield and just dropping it. And so you get to see what's really happening. Oh, Robin, I have to say this stuff, I find it almost unbearable and as a result, I, I was saying this to you before the other day, I haven't looked because I can't bear to because I know it's going to be grotesque and it's going to upset me. And I know that that will then change my habits, but I'm also mm. really reticent to do it because I just don't want to be confronted with it. You know, whenever you see this, whether it's Peter and animal cruelty videos, which is a whole other thing, but I don't know, when you see footage of factory farming, it's just grim, isn't it? Yeah. You feel guilty. Well, the factory farm, I think people, when they, you know, imagine a cow, they just see this farm, you know. And oh, you're the green and pleasant yeah, land, yeah, the yeah. cow on his own in a field. Yeah, yes, exactly. But 95% of animals are raised in factories in Australia. So it's pretty grim. Actually, on the grimness, and we are going to get off this, but uh, I read a book by Philip Limbury, who was on the podcast uh, a few seasons back. He is the head of something called Compassion in World Farming, and he's the co-author of a book called Farmageddon. And that's where I discovered the truth about feedlots where cattle never see grass. Yeah, ever. It's absolutely, I was about to swear, trying not to swear on this podcast. It's feral, isn't it? It's just awful. Yeah. That's what really turned me was just the disgust of it. It's immoral, actually. Yeah better word is definitely immoral and it doesn't feel right, you know, and if it doesn't feel right and it never felt right to me, I was a vegan as a teenager. So it was just coming back to it. You know, I kind of lost my way and it was very easy as a fashion model. You know, I was on set one day and then I was like, you know what, I'm just going to eat what's (laughs) available to me and dress what's put on me. You know, I don't have to think, I'm just going to conform to the masses. And then suddenly I didn't have to think about it. And I just put it all in a box somewhere away. And then, you know, my career blossomed. And I feel like now when I had to use veganism to save my health, I've come a 180 again. I realized thing that I it's my responsibility to watch those animals that get tortured, mm. to understand what they go through because they helped me so much. There's so many threads to pick up on, but I have to go for saved your life. Just before you said veganism had saved your life and you just mentioned again this I mean, it's it's not so much a choice as something that you had to do. Actually, is that the wrong way to frame it? I don't know. Tell us what you mean by saying that veganism literally saved your health. Well, I say saved my health because I want to re- reiterate that veganism won't make you sick because a lot of people think they're going to get sick or there's not enough protein and things like that. It saved my life in health. The first reason yes. that you moved to a yes. vegan diet yes. was because yes. of a health crisis. Yes. You have lupus. Mm-hmm. What is that? It's basically, it's similar to cancer in a way that your body just kind of starts attacking itself, you know, and it it goes for any organ. And it's what happened with my lupus was it developed APS, which is called antiphospholid antibody syndrome, which creates blood clots. And it's actually more common than you think, um, but any age and anyone can develop it. And they're still working out lupus and what starts lupus right. and things like that. It's an autoimmune mm-hmm. disease. Mm-hmm. So they don't really know exactly what triggers it, but they know what it does once you've got it. And also that you can kind never of. get rid of it, right? <laughs> oh, so you don't... No, you don't yeah, know. it's like free fall. You're in free fall. When you get diagnosed with lupus, the doctors even diagnosing don't even tell you what you're in for because, you know, if you get diagnosed with lupus, you're not going to think you have strokes, but I had two strokes. So... 
or you're going to have kidney failure. You know, there's a lot of people with kidney failure. So it kind of, it, it attacks anywhere and everywhere. It attacked my skin. It attacked my, you know, the blood clotting situation. So lupus is very serious, but you can't put it in remission through diet. What did you do? I, I went well, vegan. <laughs> first of all, though, how did you find out that you had it? I had uh, my baby and um, I had some symptoms before she was born with skin problems and, and sun and stuff and stress, but I had my baby and then a few weeks later I wasn't feeling very well and a lot of doctors were like, oh, it's just postpartum. I went to hospital two times uh, because I had issues with my tongue. I had aphasia happening, uh, so I actually already had a stroke. So is that where part of you becomes yeah. paralysed? Yes, or you can't frozen? talk. Yeah, half my left side of my face was like I couldn't work it. And the doctors there, I mean, hospitals there, yeah, crazy. And my manager came over and she took one look at me and rang my family in Australia and was like, Robin's very sick. You need to come and get her right away. This was in New York. Mm-hmm. This was in LA. I'd moved to LA. And uh, so they came and they took me back to Sydney. And uh, in Sydney, we went straight to hospital and they did CAT scans and MRIs and all that. And they came out. And the last thing I ever thought and I never thought in a million years that would be my diagnosis because I was actually starting to get over the stroke again because I'm young. So the, the aphasia was, it was still there, but I was getting, um, and then the doctor came out to me and he said, you have, uh, you've had two strokes. I mean, the word is yeah. terrifying, oh, isn't it's, it? It's awful. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't actually understand what I had for years afterwards. I kind of blew him off. I was so determined and freaked out by it. I just didn't understand the seriousness of what I what I went through. How how old were you? I was twenty five. I mean, and and also I'm thinking now, Robin. How how must that have been when you've got a new baby? Oh yeah. I like, mean, I was so obsessed with her and so obsessed with watching her sleep. And it sounds very weird, but I was so scared she would stop breathing. Like when you're a new mum, I was just paranoid she wouldn't breathe on my watch or, you know, you really it's your baby, you know, so. I just was, you know, not very, and wasn't sleeping very well and just making sure she was, you know, eating and everything like that. And then you got breastfeeding stuff and it's a very complicated time, but that's why, unfortunately, a lot of doctors are like, it's just postpartum. She'll be better. Don't worry about her. And they just move you aside, you mm-hmm. know, women's problems everywhere. So they, they said to you that you'd had a stroke or two strokes, maybe? They said multiple strokes. I mean, he gave me like a few years to live. Like he was like, he didn't even look at me when he was talking to me. I think he was, you know, looking at his papers and he had to give this information to a woman. And uh, he just said, you've had strokes and you've had lupus and APS is why you've had the strokes. And then he just walked away. So, what, what, I mean, asking you how you felt seems absolutely ludicrous. I don't think that's even a question. But what, what did you make of it then? How did you come to terms with understanding what your condition was and then talk to us about how you found a breakthrough. Yeah, well, like I said, it took me years, unfortunately. I feel... Did it? Yeah, I feel, I don't know why it took me years, but I was so shocked by his, what he told me that the aphasia had started to leave my body. I started to be able to talk again. I started to be able to move again. So I just put it aside and I started to eat what I usually ate and which was, you know, meat and dairy and stuff. And then a year later I had a seizure so, and then I had more seizures. What conventional medical advice do the doctors give you? Well, they're so struck with autoimmune diseases, especially they, you know, they said you have post-stroke epilepsy. It's actually very common if you've had a stroke. Their advice was more steroid injections, steroids, or chemotherapy. 
to, you know, stop your body basically attacking itself when it gets into flare or stay out of the sun. They didn't give me much hope. There wasn't any hope. And you see these doctors, you know, for minutes, you know, a few times. So they don't really know much about you. And it was a doctor that um, kind of cornered me after a TV interview of surviving a seizure down a staircase. I mean, (laughs) for listeners who don't know Robin's story, I remember seeing the pictures that you posted on Instagram when that happened in 2018. Yeah, I think it was 2018. And I mean, you hit your face, you shared very candid shots of what you looked like when you had got up. Yeah. <laughs> horrific. Yeah, I mean... I mean, scary, not horrific face. Yeah. I mean, horrific oh, no, experience. No, it was horrific. It was horrible. I mean, my agent was like, what are you doing? Don't do this. Like, But I just felt like I had to be honest. I felt so, it was such a thing that happened to my face. I just wanted to share it like with other sufferers, with other epileptics. and. But so shocking. And when I'm saying these words, horrific and shocking, I don't mean how you looked. I mean, the experience, the fear of it, the, the, the emotional jarring of it, mm-hmm. right, for you. Yeah, it's super, you wake up in the hospital. For me, I woke up in the ambulance. I woke up in, actually woke up on the floor and my partner being like, it's okay, baby, I called the ambulance. I called the ambulance, like, don't worry. And my daughter was there. So it was very dramatic and the ambulance came and you're then stuck in the hospital with just like the realities of what's happened. And it's it's so traumatic. But I've been through that so many times now. I've built a much tougher skin to it and you just have to, you know, and it sucks, but like I said, through going on TV and talking about that experience, I had this doctor out of nowhere after, literally after I'd been on the TV, like came backstage and she was like, rah, rah, rah. she cornered me. She was like, I can cure your lupus. I can cure your lupus. And I was like, get the, you know, get out yeah. of here, whatever lady, like you talk, you look crazy. <laughs> like, I don't know why you're doing this. And she's like, I had lupus and I cured it. Please just trust me. I'm a doctor. I'm not like some random. And then she, yeah, gave me her information and I contacted her. This is Dr. Brooke Goldner, who yeah. developed a nutrition-based treatment for her own autoimmune disease, which she she describes this treatment as a hyper-nourishing protocol. Yeah. What does that mean? She had lupus 17 years ago. She was in stage four kidney failure and uh, she was given six months to live and she was just determined to figure out ways to combat that. And she found this lupus protocol, well, this green smoothie protocol, and like you said, it's about hypernourishing. So it's just about stopping the inflammation, like stopping all the inflammatory food groups, and then just over hypernourishing. You can't over eat vegetables, you know? Like you think about all the times you as a child, they're like, eat your vegetables. It's basically like that. Like eat your green leafy vegetables. You need them to survive. Like then the most important thing you can eat is your green cruciferous vegetables. I was actually going to start this interview, Robin, was with... Hello, Popeye, if you have your greens. (laughs) I have to do it every day now. Like even after this interview, I'm going to be buying more spinach because I haven't had enough today and it's every day. So did you just think, well, I may as well give it a try. I've got nothing to lose. Yeah, I told my doctors and I told my rheumatologist what I was going to do and I told her she has a six-week rapid recovery group and I even went on Instagram and shared it because I was like, you know, if this does work, like I am going to share it because – it's information that needs to be shared. And I know lupus is very serious and I don't want to be like, a, it's that, you know, I just want to of give course. the honest information that I would like to see if I was a lupus patient. It was hard. I'm not saying it was easy. Rapid recovery was so hard because I had to eat raw vegan. It wasn't just like regular vegan. It, you know, I gave up everything and uh, did those smoothies all day. But she also gave me counseling sessions every day and talked me through it. And, you know, it was more than just like, Um, It didn't feel just by myself. And um, the fact that I was posting it also gave me encouragement to keep Mm. going. And then 
when I got my first blood test and even the rheumatologist was excited because she was like, it's working. And so it just gave me the motivation to keep going. I love that you said, and I know how careful and considered you are when you talk about this, that you don't want to give people the wrong information or just make light of something that is a medical diagnosis. But it ha- this has worked for you. Mm-hmm. You've now seen your lupus go into remission. And you and I were talking about this the other day. It doesn't really matter whether you can prove it. There may be people listening who would say, well, there's no evidence for that. I would say in brackets, yet. Because we do have this sense, don't we, Robin? I want to talk about this. A common sense, a feeling, an, an instinct for the truth of the power of what we put into our bodies, including thoughts. I know that's a sort of long-winded way of saying it, but talk a bit about that because with the proviso that we can't prove it, although you're living proof of how your diet altered your outcomes. Yeah, you know, that was actually the hardest thing for me to overcome because you get this big, you can't cure it, you, get, you can't cure it, you can't cure it. And that's all everyone repeats, especially lupus patients too. If they hear you saying that, the first thing I got messages was like, yo, please, you can't stop this, like whatever lady. But her positivity, like her positiveness, I can't even say that word, positiveness, <laughs> her positivity really helped me. And the fact that she was in remission for 17 years now, and God, that's a damn good time to be in remission for. So I thought, you know, what's, what's to lose? I'm not doing chemo. Like I want to do this before I try chemo to help my body. And it's not that big of a change and it helps the environment. So why aren't I doing it? And my partner, he... He's such an animal activist. He's like, I want to do this with you. And I'm going in the whole way. Okay. When I said, have you had your spinach, <laughs> you know, Popeye <laughs> spinach, what would you be consuming in your smoothies? Just tell us what your diet looks like day to day. Well, day to day, I like to eat normal vegan food, but not too like trashy vegan food. I try to keep it healthy. And then, What's trashy vegan food? Like a, a fake burger? Yeah. Like I, you know, we'll have that now and then, but I'm not eating junk food every day. Like I haven't eaten fast food since I can remember. I like to cook a lot. I have a, I put what I cook on Instagram a lot for people that don't know how to cook vegan food because it can be complicated for them. And then the smoothies, uh, I fill a blender with spinach and then I add flax seeds, like half a cup to a cup for omega-3 or chia. And other, you can use other things, but omega, you really need omega-3. And that's actually one of the most important things. So I'll go and search for omega-3 every country I land in and flax seeds or linseeds. I prepared this earlier. <laughs> Spinach belongs to a Latin name, which I'll share in the show notes family, also known as goose foot, which includes beetroot, chard and quinoa. Who knew? But the whole thing about the leaves being really dark green is that they contain high levels of chlorophyll and also health-promoting carotenoids. It's really rich in iron, and I got all this from BBC Good Food. They do good research. I didn't need to. They also talk about how spinach is anti-inflammatory and anti-cancerous, and they say it's long been regarded as a plant that can restore energy, increase vitality, and improve the quality of the blood. I love this stuff about foods having superpowers. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I was blown away, and I think anyone that's gone through you know, something as serious as an autoimmune disease or something like cancer, and that's put it in remission, will be like me, like touted every day to everyone. I mean, I'm asking people on the street if they're drinking smoothies now. <laughs> like just, well, you can if you don't want to have the smoothie, you can have a giant green salad, but I'm talking it's a lot of cups. Like when she started the rapid recovery group with me, she was like eight cups plus a day. I thought she was joking, but she wasn't. She was serious. And 
I was like, what is this lady on? I've never heard such an amount, but she's like, you've got a serious autoimmune disease that we're putting into remission. So you've got to be serious about this. So I think that's why it's such an amount and so extreme. And obviously it's per weight, per body. So if you're a small, I'm a huge person. So if you're a smaller person, it's like four to five cups and things like that. And the linseeds or flax seeds. Robin, I can't believe you just said, I'm a huge person. How tall are you? I'm six foot two and a half. But that word, like, do you think of yourself as like, I'm a big, I'm a big boned person or I'm a huge person? I like just think I'm big in general because I walk around the streets and everyone's like half my size. So, so I think. I say that because it's a convenient segue into your modeling story. I know you now as an activist, as a vegan, a cooking influencer, I feel like, because you share all these amazing recipes with people and you make this fantastic content that invites people in. You're an eco-warrior, you're a sustainability advocate, you're a mum, you've got your own podcast, you even had a swimwear Sweet. label. <laughs> you got it all going on. But actually, I knew you first as a model and I knew you first as a Vogue model. And you were known as the first plus size model in the pages of Australian Vogue. Let's talk about that word. I hate it. How about you? The plus size as a phrase. I think yeah. it's so, I just think it's, it's it, what do you think? I think, you know, some of the plus community, as I'm going to say here, actually love the term. Oh, so, they own it. Yeah, they own it. So I don't want to like diminish it in that respect. But for me, it was like, I didn't care what I was called as long as I was working back in the day either. But then I did see the diminishing part of it. I was like, why can't we just be models? Like, why are you segregating us? Like, what's the need for that, you know, segregation? I don't understand it. Mm. Um, it was 2011 when you were on a now iconic cover of Vogue Italia shot by Stephen Mizell with, who else was in it? Tara. Uh, Tara Lynn, Makita Pring and Candice Safine. American models, Candice anyway. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Tara, yeah. Yes, and Makita. They're all American so black and white, kind of sexy underwear, but powerful. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was a three-day shoot. Usually editorials aren't that long, and I've never seen so many people in my life at a. Oh my god! Editorial I went on, shoot. I've been on a myself <laughs> shoot. I've never seen anything like it. Yeah. There were must oh. have been fifty people on that shoot. I was blown away because I've been on shoots, but that was by far the biggest like set I've ever been on for an ed editorial because editorials, you usually you can have like one person to like 10 or 20 max, but 50, I was like, where is like the whole, like hotel, like mm. the whole, whole level we like dominated. But it's also he had so many assistants, then he comes yeah. and presses the button. <laughs> he is a genius. But I do think it's funny. It's like, and here are my nine assistants. Yeah. Oh, trust me, if you assist Stephen, though, damn, you're going to be someone. That's why they are. What were responses when that came out? Because it was a very talked about cover. Uh, it was huge. And I, I remember having to try to get back to New York, even for the casting of it. It was all very dramatic. I was in London. So they were like, Robin, you're going to get here right now. I was like, I'm coming. It's Stephen Mizell. Yeah. It was very scary meeting him and so intimidating. And I didn't have any idea. We had no idea it would be the, we just thought it would be a story in the magazine and they never told us it would be a cover. So when it came out, I was so happy. Pat McGrath really got me that job. The amazing makeup artist. She really loved me and she was like, we have to use her, Steve. And I was like, Pat, I love you forever. <laughs> uh, and Edward Innenfall, like these are just so iconic. Was he the stylist? Yes. Was he? I yes. didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. He was shoving my giant size 12 feet into size 9 <laughs> shoes. So, yeah. That was July 2011, Vogue Italia's issue. In August 2011, you were on the cover of Vogue Australia. It was two years after I left, I think. I wasn't there anyway. But I remember the cover. And 
I had a look at what the then editor said about it. And I thought I'd share it because it's interesting. She called you a truly super duper model, uh, super duper, super model, cute. She said that you were absolutely gorgeous and she was floored by your beauty and poise. So very, you know, positive. But then she said this thing, which I was like, God, these were the times. I've written it down. She said, she doesn't actually look like a plus size model to me at all now. I said to a colleague on set later that day, and men like curves, don't they? He looked at me like I was an idiot. Ah, yes, we certainly do, was his laconic reply. And this was in her editor's letter. And then she said, and it's an interesting conversation. The world of high fashion and full of figured women, one that needs to be continued. I know that this was the sort of context of the times, but to me now, sort of 10 years later, it seems... Super weird and reductive that we can only have a curvy, in adverted commas, girl if she's sexy. This is just what real women are, all different shapes and sizes, right? Why does it have to be mm. models are skinny or sexy girls are curvy? I just find it bizarre. Oh, yeah, 100%. They oftentimes get put into that curvy, sexy kind of world. But I feel like in the last few years, we've seen a lot more editorial of a lot more diversity and a lot more women owning their sizes in a lot more different sizing and different ethnicities. And different Um, moods and tones, right? Yeah, it's coming more because I used to find that too. That used to piss me off because I wanted to always do the weird editorials. Oh, they go, you do the lingerie, you do the sexy things. I wanted to do the weird stuff. So I often would do weird shoots with my friends like, and we would get weird styling and just try to do like the cool editorial stuff because I I wanted to do more cool editorial stuff like ID and Purple Mag and I wanted to be included in that because I felt like they would just making us be those sexy girls. So 100%, it's definitely been like that. And I think it's changing a little now. It's getting a little bit more diverse with that, but it needs to change more. Mm. In 2018, correct me if I'm wrong, you did a change.org campaign to suggest we boycott Victoria's Secret because of their track record of always showing the same sized and mm-hmm. type of body girl. Yeah, well... There, I mean, that year in particular, I was so angry because um, I really thought with all the, uh, you know, because I'd been doing the petition before the runway because I was hoping that they would include a curvy girl on the runway or just someone bigger than the size zeros and, you know, someone more like Tyra Banks that they've had before, just someone more like, you know, new and or even older. Like, what's the deal? They were getting so younger um, and they didn't. They went the complete opposite way. They went really skinny and really young. And then that's why they've gotten such severe backlash. Isn't it funny, though, in hindsight, you know, a couple of years later, no one was looking at Victoria's Secret anymore because actually the times have changed and we've Mm -hmm. we've had enough culturally. We've all had enough of it. You've got the money. You've got the power. Don't buy it, you know. It's it's cheap crap anyway. I actually brought along the text of some of what you wrote on on the change.org petition because I think the words are really powerful. Do you mind reading it for us? Of course. Amazing. Thank you. Join me and let's help change the minds of Victoria's Secret to be more diverse and inclusive of body shapes and sizes on their runways. As women, I want us all to join together and say, I am enough. I am beautiful. I am unique. And I want to see my body shape represented in your shows, or I vow to never buy your product again. (laughs) Go. (laughs) I have a daughter and I refuse to let her grow up with those limited ideals, this potential that she might not achieve in life by worrying more about fitting in this ridiculous idea that a bra size is more important than her physical and emotional health. Do you want your daughters to feel the same? Wow. 
the reason I brought that is because of how powerful it is when we think about our responsibility to the next generation of young women, to your daughters, to your sisters. We don't want our kids to grow up in a, in a world where you are reduced to a certain ideal of beauty and made to feel less if you're not meeting it, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, the reason why I was so petitioning specifically against part of Victoria's Secret was because they dominated my teenage years. You know, the shows were huge when I was growing up. They were oh, monumental. So many people yeah. were watching that when it was televised for years. Yeah. Until very recently, it was like the most clicked magazine story online. Yeah. You know, of all the fashion shows, Victoria's Secret was the one you watched and it didn't matter who you kind of were, if you were into fashion or not. And so, and I was 16 and young and very impressionable and they made a very big impression on me. And I have an eight-year-old daughter and I think about her being 16 and her seeing that 2018 runway especially and I get my blood boils because my daughter is not going to have any of those body shapes you know she's going to be she's already similar to my size and she's going to grow up big and tall like me like that's just our body types within our family and I want her to own it and not feel like she has to be a stick figure. You grew up in western Sydney yeah. What sort of kid were you? <laughs> uh, very outdoors just adventurous sporty outdoors girl. Well, why did modelling come into it? How did that happen for you? Uh, I have a, a model. My auntie modelled a little bit. She's also a fashion designer. Is she? Yeah, and she just was fabulous and beautiful. And I would go down to Melbourne where she lived and look at the modelling photos of her and uh, just admire that. And my oldest sister was, you know, really into fashion TV. <laughs> so she just would watch fashion TV all the time. And I was just, I'm seven years younger, but I just would watch it with her. So it was very... It, into, Love fashion. Yeah, into my life. And did someone scout you or did you send your pictures in somewhere or what? Uh, I was actually on a, I, I kind of got into it just for money and extra cash. And then um, I came back from traveling and living overseas as a student exchange and a casting director was like, you're not right for this job that I was casting for just like a regular size brand. But he's like, I think you'd be really good for this other thing. And then he met me meeting Chelsea Bonner, my still current manager to this day. And he's like, I think you and Chelsea would be really good match. And then when I met Chelsea, I was so used to these other agencies being like, yeah, you're not really the right size. You're not really the right size. And then Chelsea was like, stay exactly as you are. And it was just the biggest, you know, breath of fresh air. I've never had anyone say that to me. Did you face in those early days of going to castings, people saying you're too big or mm -hmm. commenting on your body? Oh, yeah. I had people saying you're too big. I had people patting on me on the head. I had people measuring my hips. It's like, it's what modeling is. It's it's a common, you know, occurrence. So it was just, yeah, that was just the reality of it. What now do you feel about all of that, given how important it is for you to have a strong, healthy body above all else now after what you've been through with the health? Yeah, I definitely. I mean, that's why you've got, I will say it everywhere and just carry bags of spinach everywhere. <laughs> um, you know, I think health, your health is the most important thing. You know, you are your body, so take care of it. And these diets that, you know, you do, they're not good for you if they're like restrictive of everything. You need to trust in your body and just heal your body. I think don't even look at it as a diet. I think look at it as your body is like, it needs the most nutrients it can. How can I get the most nutrients into my body today? 
And that's the way I view the smoothies even. And it really helps. And I still eat delicious vegan food. And then I just think my body needs these nutrients. They're really important. Yeah, just focus do on you, that. Do you feel like, I guess I'm pushing you to say, what's your, maybe that's the question, what's your relationship with your body like now? Um, it's definitely, I feel strong now. And I want to get stronger. I do a lot of yoga. And so yoga is really helping me. And I really want to be strong within my body to do poses that I couldn't do as a model before. But as a tall woman, I want to be able to move my body that you wouldn't think a tall woman could. So yeah, yoga is really uh, amazing. I love yoga. I'll do yoga every day. Mm. Let's finish on where we began, which is vegan. What are the challenges in turning vegan? Uh, it's everyone else in your life. Is it? <laughs> That's challenge number one. It's everyone else in your life. I'm not kidding you. It's unfortunately family members and friends and people adjusting to your new status. It's very hard, actually. Because they forget and give you a chicken sandwich. Or yeah. what do you mean? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or they, you know, will have a go at you about not being healthy or not, you know, I get uh, issues. People think I'm not giving enough nutrients to my daughter, for example. So people really would like to have a go at you. but. Everyone's got an opinion. <laughs> Every, everyone's got an opinion. <laughs> Isn't that just the world? It's so yeah. annoying. Do you get more of that on social media? So not from friends, just from strangers. Uh, I get. I definitely get both. I get both worlds, and uh, I'm definitely. I'm still navigating that. And I have a lot of animal activists I love that I read. Like Gary Francione is amazing. And who's that? I've got three books of, at home of his. He teaches at Rutgers University. So my partner found him and my partner was at the meetings before so when I was like I'm going vegan for my health he was like I'm going to go vegan with you baby because I believe in this and he had all the books already so eat like you care animal property and the law rain without thunder is a really good one the animal rights debate and just animal rights uh abolitionist approach so he's he's got a lot of books and just hearing other opinions there's a lot of Instagram videos now of people talking about it and people interviewing people on the street and I follow them and it is easy and you, there's so much delicious vegan food now. It's so easy. I was going to say, do you think one of the things that prevents people is that they feel they have to compromise and they'll miss out? I think I said that to you the other day, like, oh, I couldn't do it because I'll miss cheese. Yeah. Well, everyone always says that to me. I think that's number one. Everyone always says I can't do it because I miss cheese or I miss bacon. And when I was younger, I definitely missed cheese when I was a teenager. But now I, I cheese disgusts me. I have no, I, I don't even like vegan cheese. You lose the taste for it. So yeah. you get used, the, the point is you sort of get used to it, don't you? Yeah. And I think like, I don't care for vegan cheese. My partner still has vegan cheese, but it doesn't, it doesn't even phase me now. And I think more about the vegetables I'm eating. And I think the smoothies really help my body's ability. My body's already got all its nutrients it needs. So now it's just what I want for fun, you know? So it's not craving anything that it really, you know, so it's not going through those crash cravings. What else? They don't, they want to fit in? They don't yeah, stand out? Yeah, fitting in is really hard to, you know, causing a problem. You know, I used to hate, that was the biggest reason why I actually went back to eating meat was because I didn't like causing a problem or being the problem. Because, and I even had friends come up to me afterwards and been like, when you were vegan, it was so annoying. And I was like, Thanks, you know. <laughs> I think that's a big thing. Yeah. yeah. Oh, 100%. I think people... You're the difficult one. Yeah. The one with the cause, dietary yeah. issues or yeah. whatever it is. Exactly. But there's so much more dietary issues out now. Like people are more gluten intolerant or they can't have the nuts. So I think you're going now, it's more of a, 
it's easier to be, definitely. And there's so many more vegan restaurants everywhere, like triple the amount there was. Let's end then on what do you gain? So you, with your personal story, have gained amazing things when it comes to your health. But what else do you gain from, if you're listening to this, what would you say to people considering making that choice to go vegan? I think you gain that morality back, you know, and it's that closeted thing. And I think if you can watch those videos and feel okay about it, then go for it, eat meat. But if you can't watch those documentaries that I recommended without feeling, you know, that way, it doesn't feel, it never felt right to me. And I, I can't go to the farms or the factory farms. Like I can't even be anywhere near them because you can hear them screaming and all that information, like I can't, like pigs scream like humans, just FYI. It's horrific. And I've, I've seen enough, I've heard enough. And it's so much better for the environment to give it up. And I think you've just got to get over that hump. They do say that one of the best things you can do to reduce your carbon footprint is to give up meat. 100% and dairy. Um, well, I hope everyone takes away, uh, eat some spinach and <laughs> eat some flax seeds or linseeds today because you're going to get that omega-3 and you're going to get that iron and great nutrients from the spinach. And please consider going vegan for yourself, for the animals and for the environment. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram at The Wardrobe Crisis. And I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs. Press. Because I love you. Because I love you. Because I love you.